Chapter 7 The Sacrament of Unity Greet one another with a holy kiss. 1 Corinthians 16.20 In the contemporary order of the liturgy, the exclamation, Let us love one another, takes up so little time that it is almost impossible for us to truly hear it, to hear it not only with our outer but also our inner ear. For us today, it is just one of the exclamations that precede the symbol of faith. But in earlier times, this was not so. We know from the liturgical evidence of the ancient church that a kiss of peace was actually performed after this exclamation, and the entire church, the entire gathering, took part in it. When the time comes for the exhortation of the mutual reception of the peace, writes John Chrysostom, we all kiss each other, and... The clerics greet the bishop, the laymen, the men, the women, the women. This rite is preserved to this day in the liturgical practices of the Nestorians, Copts, and Arminians, which were not exposed to late Byzantine influences and thus often reflect an earlier form of the Eucharistic celebration. And this rite is not only Eucharistic, for the kiss of peace comprised an important and inalienable part of all Christian worship. Thus, it was performed after a baptism, when the bishop kissed the anointed with the words, The Lord be with you. At the consecration of a new bishop, the entire assembly, both clerics and laity, likewise greeted him with a holy kiss, after which he would preside over the Eucharistic offering for the first time. It is obvious from the history of this moment in the liturgy that it underwent a substantial change. From an action, and moreover a common action, it was transformed into an exclamation, and with this change, the content of the summons contained in this exclamation also changed, at least in part. The contemporary exclamation, let us love one another, is a call to a certain condition, while in its ancient forms it summoned the gathering to a specific act, greet one another. And we have evidence that this act was performed even without any exclamation, Several documents describe a kiss being performed during the giving of the peace. It is obvious that, as has occurred more than once in the history of worship, an exclamation that itself was derived from an action then gradually displaced or, more precisely, narrowed the action to the sanctuary alone, where to this day it is performed between the celebrating priests and deacons. At first glance, this gradual replacement of a common action with an exclamation and all these technical details would not seem to present any peculiar interest. The exclamation itself would not require an explanation, inasmuch as everyone knows that love is the highest Christian commandment, and thus a reminder of it would be appropriate before this most important of all church ceremonies. But if so, what does it matter whether this reminder consists in a call to love or in a symbol of love, and in the case of peace the commentators see, of course, just one more symbol? One may suppose, moreover, that the disappearance of the action was linked with the growth of the church, with the appearance of a crowded assemblies in huge churches, where no one knew each other, and where this rite, from our contemporary point of view, would be simply a formality. But all this is so only at first glance, when we have not yet considered the genuine and precisely liturgical meaning of these words and actions, and above all the meaning of the very expression, Christian love. In fact, we have become so accustomed to this expression, we have heard preaching about love and the summons to it so many times that it is difficult for us to be struck with the eternal newness of these words. 
And yet Christ himself pointed out this newness. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. John 13.34 Even before Christ, however, the world in fact knew about love, about the value and height of love. Do we not find in the Old Testament the new commandments regarding love for God, Deuteronomy 6.5, and the love for neighbor, Leviticus 19.18, that Christ said contain the entire law and the prophets, Matthew 22.40? In what then lies the newness of this commandment? The newness not only at the moment of the pronunciation of these words by the Savior, but for all time, all people. The newness that never ceases to be new? In order to answer this question, it is enough to recall one of the fundamental signs of Christian love, as it is indicated in the Gospels, love your enemies. These words contain nothing less than an unheard-of demand for love toward someone whom we precisely do not love. This is why they do not cease to disturb us, to frighten us, and, above all, to judge us, as long as we have not become thoroughly deaf to the Gospel. Precisely because this commandment is unheard of and new, we, for the most part, substitute our own cunning human interpretations of it. Already for centuries, and apparently with a pure conscience, not only individual Christians, but also whole churches, have affirmed that in reality, Christian love must be directed toward one's own. That, to love essentially, and self-evidently means to love neighbors and family, one's own people, one's own country, all those persons and things that we would usually love anyway, without Christ and the gospel. We no longer notice that in orthodoxy, for example, religiously colored and justified nationalism long ago became a genuine heresy, crippling church consciousness, hopelessly dividing the orthodox East, and making all of our profuse talk about the ecumenical truth of orthodoxy a hypocritical lie. We have forgotten the other, no less strange and frightening words that the gospel contains about this merely natural love. He who loves father or mother son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me matthew 10:35 and if any one comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers he cannot be my disciple luke 14:26 if coming to christ signifies the fulfillment of his commandment then obviously christian love not only is not a simple increase crowning and religious sanction of natural love but is radically distinguished from it and even contraposed to it. It is really a new love, of which our fallen nature and fallen world are incapable, and which is therefore impossible in it. But how can we fulfill this commandment? How can we love those whom we do not love? Is not the mystery of any love that it can never be the fruit of only the will, of self-education, of practice, even of ascesis? Through the exercise of the will and self-education one can attain good will, toleration, and even-handedness in relations with others, but not love, which St. Isaac the Syrian says is even merciful to the demons. And what then can this impossible commandment of love mean? There can be only one answer to this question. Yes, this commandment would actually be impossible and, consequently, monstrous if Christianity consisted only in the commandment to love. But Christianity is not only the commandment, but also the revelation and the gift of love. And love was commanded only because, before the command, it was revealed and given to us. Only God is love. Only God loves with the love of which the Gospels speak. And only in the divine incarnation, in the unification of God and man, i.e., in Jesus Christ, the Son of God and the Son of Man, 
is the love of God himself, or better yet, God himself who is love, manifested and granted to human beings. In this is the staggering newness of Christian love, that in the New Testament man is called to love with the divine love, which has become the divine human love, the love of Christ. The newness of Christianity lies not in the commandment to love, but in the fact that it has become possible to fulfill the commandment. In union with Christ, we receive his love and can love with it and grow in it. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which was given to us, Romans 5, 5. And through Christ, we have been commanded to abide in him and in his love. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. And he who abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Abide in my love. John fifteen four five and 9. To abide in Christ means to be and to live in the church, which is the life of Christ, communicated and granted to humanity, and which therefore lives through Christ's love, abides in his love. The love of Christ is the origin, content, and goal of the church's life, and this love is in essence the only sign of the church, for all the rest is embraced by it. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. John 13.35 Love is the essence of the holiness of the church, for it has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, the essence of the unity of the church, which upbuilds itself in love. Ephesians 4.16 And finally, the essence of apostolicity and catholicity. For the church is everywhere and always the same single apostolic union, joined with the yoke of love. Therefore, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3 For only love gives every sign of the church. Unity, holiness, apostolicity, and catholicity, its significance and actuality. The church is a union of love, or as Kamokiov put it, love as an organism, not only in the sense that her members are united by love, but above all, in that through this love of all for each other, through love as life itself, she manifests Christ and his love to the world. She witnesses to him and loves and saves the world through the love of Christ. In the fallen world, the mission of the church as salvation is to manifest the world as regenerated by Christ. The essence of the fallen world is that division, the separation of each from all, reigns in it. This is not overcome by the natural love of certain people for certain others, and it triumphs and is fulfilled in the ultimate separation, death. The essence of the church lies in the manifestation and presence in the world of love as life and life as love. Fulfilling herself in love, she witnesses to the world to this love. She bears it to the world, and with it she ministers to creation, which had been subordinated to the law of division and death. In it, each person mysteriously obtains the power to yearn with the affection of Christ Jesus, Philippians 1, 8, and to be a witness to and bearer of this love in the world. But then, the assembling as the church is above all the sacrament of love. We go to church for love, for the new love of Christ himself 
which is granted to us in our unity, we go to church so that this divine love will again and again be poured into our hearts, so that again and again we may put on love, Colossians 3.14, so that constituting the body of Christ, we can abide in Christ's love and manifest it in the world. But that is why our contemporary, utterly individualized piety, in which we egotistically separate ourselves from the gathering, is so grievous, so contradictory to the age-old experience of the church. Even while standing in the church, we continue to sense some people as neighbors and others as strangers, a faceless mass that has no relevance to us and to our prayer and disturbs our spiritual concentration. How often do seemingly spiritually attuned and devout people openly declare their distaste for crowded gatherings which disturb them from praying and seek empty and quiet chapels, secluded corners separate from the crowds? In fact, such individual self-absorption would hardly be possible in the church assembly precisely because this is not the purpose of the assembly and of our participation in it. Concerning this individual prayer, the gospel says, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray. Matthew 6, 6. Does not this mean that the assembling as the church has another purpose already contained in the very word assembly? Through it, the church fulfills herself, accomplishes our communion with Christ and with his love so that in participating in it, we comprise out of many one body. And thus, the kiss of peace is disclosed to us in its full significance. I have said above that it constituted an inalienable part of the church assembly from the first day of the church's existence. This was because, for the early Christians, it was not simply a symbol and a reminder of love, but a sacred rite of love, the visible sign and rite in which and through which the effusion of divine love into the hearts of the faithful, the vesting of each other all together in the love of Christ, is invisibly but really accomplished. In our current, utterly individualistic and egocentric approach to the church, this rite is inevitably perceived as a hollow form. I really don't know the man who is standing across from me in church. I can neither love him nor do not love him, for he is a stranger to me and thus no one. And we are so afraid of this hollow form, so utterly sincere in our individualism and egocentrism, that we forget the chief thing. We forget that in the call to greet one another with a holy kiss, we are talking not of our personal, natural, human love, through which we cannot in fact love someone who is a stranger, who has not yet become something or somebody for us, but of the love of Christ, the eternal wonder of which consists precisely in the fact that it transforms the stranger, and each stranger in his depths as an enemy, into a brother, irrespective of whether he has or does not have relevance for me and for my life that it is the very purpose of the church to overcome the horrible alienation that was introduced into the world by the devil and proved to be its undoing. And we forget that we come to church for this love, which is always granted to us in the gathering of the brethren. This is why in antiquity the assembly of the faithful was called not to be a verbal answer, but precisely to an action. For we know that we cannot of ourselves attain this love, just as we cannot acquire the peace of Christ, which surpasses all understanding, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, and union with God. All this is given, granted to us in the sacred mystery of the church, and the entire church is one great sacrament, the sacred rite of Christ. Christ is at work in all our gestures, actions, and ceremonies, and everything visible becomes the visibility of the invisible. Each symbol is fulfilled in the sacrament, Thus, in the holy kiss, 
we express not our own love, rather, we embrace each other through the new love of Christ. And is this not the joy of communion, that I receive this love of Christ from the stranger standing across from me, and he from me, and that in it we are both revealed to each other as participants in Christ's love, and this means as brother in Christ? We can only desire this love and prepare ourselves for its reception. In antiquity, those who had had fallings out had to be reconciled and forgive each other before taking part in the church assembly. Everything human had to be fulfilled so that God could reign in the heart. And to prepare ourselves means to ask ourselves, do we go to the liturgy of this love of Christ? Do we go as people who hunger and thirst not only for help and consolation, but for the fire that burns away all our weaknesses, all our limitations, and illumines us through the new love of Christ? Or are we afraid that this love will weaken our hatred for our enemies, all our principled condemnations, our discrepancies and divisions? Do we not more often desire from the church peace only with those with whom we already have it, love for those whom we already love, self-affirmation and self-justification? But if so, we are not acquiring the gift that allows us to actually renew and eternally renew our lives. We do not venture beyond the limits of our personal alienation, and we are not really taking part in the church. Let us bear in mind that in antiquity, the giving of the peace and the kiss of love were the first actions of the liturgy of the faithful, i.e., the Eucharistic celebration itself, for they not only began the Eucharist, but in a certain sense made it possible, for it is the sacrament of the New Testament, the kingdom of the love of God. Therefore, only when we are clothed in this love can we perform the remembrance of Christ, be partakers of his flesh and blood, await the kingdom of God and the life of the age to come. Make love your aim, says the apostle in 1 Corinthians 14.1, and where can we attain this if not in the sacrament in which Christ himself unites us in his love? 2. The recitation, and later the singing of the symbol of faith, was introduced in the order of the liturgy relatively late, toward the beginning of the 6th century. Up to that time, its appointed place in Christian worship was in the sacrament of baptism, the handing back of the creed, that is, the solemn confession of faith, concluded the preparation of the catechumens for their baptismal entry into the church. The symbol of faith arose in connection with baptism, and only later, at the time of the great dogmatic disputes, did it more often come to be used in its capacity as a measure of orthodoxy, as an aros, a limit guarding the church from heresy. As far as the Eucharist is concerned, which, as we already know, was a closed assembly of the faithful, i.e. those who already had come to believe, who had been reborn through water and the Spirit, who have received the anointment from above, in the consciousness of the early church it presupposed, as something self-evident, the unity of the faith of all who take part in the gathering. Therefore, the inclusion of the symbol of faith in the order of the liturgy, which became universal relatively quickly, was nothing more than the confirmation of the originally obvious, organic, and inalienable link between the unity of faith and the Church and her self-fulfillment in the Eucharist, and this link constituted the heartbeat of the experience and life of the early Church. We must dwell on this link, however, for it comprises, if you will, the chief difference between our contemporary experience and the experience of the early Church. In our time, this link is not sensed as self-evident and neither is unity of which so many speak and argue in our day, sensed as being rooted in it and flowing from it. 
I shall stipulate immediately that formally everything remains in place as it were, and this link abides as an immutable law for the orthodox, protected by the canons and church discipline. Thus, in accordance with this discipline, heterodox are not admitted to participation in the orthodox liturgy, because, according to the orthodox doctrine, communion in the sacraments presupposes unity of faith on which in turn is founded, and which expresses the unity of the church. Thus, on the strength of this discipline, orthodox are forbidden to take part in sacraments performed by heterodox. However, this law is all the more obviously perceived as a formality, for in our official school theology and in the consciousness of the believers it was long ago severed from the reality from which it arose, of which it testifies, and outside of which it is, in essence, unintelligible. This reality is the primordial, absolutely fundamental experience of the Eucharist as the sacrament of unity, and this means the sacrament of the Church, which St. Ignatius of Antioch defined as the unity of faith with love, and unite all of us to one another, who became partakers of the one bread and cup in the communion of the Holy Spirit. It is precisely this experience, engraved in these words of the Eucharistic prayer of St. Basil the Great, Precisely this understanding and perception of the Eucharist that is utterly weakened in contemporary church consciousness. But then, what can the prohibition against partaking of the sacraments of the heterodox mean, in a real, living and positive sense, if the Eucharist has long since ceased to be perceived by the Orthodox themselves as communion and union with each other? If not only for simple believers, but also in theological definitions, it has become a particular, individual means of personal sanctification, to which each resorts or from which each abstains according to the measure of his personal and self-understood spiritual needs, frame of mind, preparation or unpreparation, etc. It is obvious that, if the earlier meaning of such a prohibition lay in the fact that it defended the real experience of the church as unity of faith and, in this manner, in fact, affirm this unity and witness to it, then with the reduction of the Eucharist and, likewise all the sacraments, to the category of one of the means of sanctification, it became merely a prohibition, alas, devoid from an ever greater number of the faithful of self-evident spiritual cogency. 3. This weakening, this, we can even say, degeneration of the original Eucharistic experience is, I repeat, in fact, sanctioned both by our formal theology and by that utterly individualistic piety that is almost universally dominant in the Church, and thus passes itself off as something age-old and traditional. This sanction is already installed in formal theology in its very method. Being borrowed from the West, and thus appearing to our learned theologians as the height of science, this method consists in the isolation of each element of faith and church tradition into a self-sufficient object, if not into a separate discipline, as though the degree of comprehension of each of them depends precisely on one's ability not to coordinate it with the others, but, on the contrary, to apportion and isolate it. Thus, each of the three realities of which we are speaking here, i.e. faith, the church, the Eucharist, proves to be a subject of special study in a separate division, removed from any ties with the other two. This, in turn, actually leads to a paradoxical result. What falls out of the theological field of vision is precisely the thing that unifies these three realities, that manifests them in a triune reality, unity, which in the experience of the Church constitutes the genuine content of the new life that we receive through faith, 
live in the Church, and are granted as communion of the one Spirit in the Eucharist. One is easily convinced of this paradox. Thus, for example, one of the best of our dogmaticians, while correctly interpreting faith as a main condition of salvation, maintains complete silence on the matter of the Christian faith itself embracing the experience of unity, the experience of faith itself as unity. Why? Because, of course, constrained by his method of isolating and apportioning, in the present case, through the reduction of faith to a subordinate and perceived principle in man, he proves to be incapable of recognizing in unity simultaneously the fruit and content of faith, its life, its fulfillment in man. The same thing happens with regard to the church. Isolating, defining the church as the mediator in the sanctification of man, school theology inevitably reduces the doctrine of the church to its divinely established order. Its hierarchical structure as the condition and form of this mediation, but leaves out of its field of vision nothing less than the church herself, the church as the new life in the unity of faith and love, as the constant fulfillment of this unity. And finally, isolating on the account of this hopelessly one-sided and thus depraved method, the sacraments in general and the Eucharist in particular into a certain self-sufficient department, on the means existing in the Church for the sanctification of man. This theology is simply unaware of the Eucharist as above all the sacrament of the Church, as the gift and fulfillment of that unity of faith and love, communion of the one Spirit, in which the essence of the Church is revealed. 4. If the dropping of unity from school theology is thus explained by the very method of this theology, torn away as it is from the living experience of the church, then the cause of its falling out from contemporary piety needs to be sought in the gradual dissolution of faith into what can be best defined as religious feeling. This statement may seem strange, even senseless, to many, inasmuch as in our day these concepts have become virtually equivalent. In the Christian experience and understanding of faith, however, the differences between them are indeed enormous. Faith is always, and above all, a meeting with the other, conversion to the other, the reception of him as the way, the truth, and the life, love for him, and the desire for total unity with him, such that it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Galatians 2.20 And because faith is always directed to the other, it is man's exodus from the limits of his I, a radical change of his interrelations above all within himself. Meanwhile, religious feeling, which in our day again dominates in religion, is so distinct from faith because it lives and is nourished by itself, i.e., through the gratification that it gives and which, in the final analysis, is subordinated to personal tastes and emotional experiences, subjective and individual spiritual needs. Faith, to the degree that it is indeed faith, cannot but be an inner struggle, I believe. Help my unbelief, Mark 9.24. Religious feeling, on the contrary, satisfies precisely because it is passive, and if it is oriented toward anything, it is primarily toward help and consolation amidst life's adversities. Although its subject is always the person, faith is never individualistic, for it is directed to that which is revealed to it as absolute truth, which by its very nature is incapable of being individual. Faith, therefore, invariably requires confession, expression, attraction, and conversion of others to itself. 
Religious feeling, on the contrary, being utterly individualistic, feels itself to be inexpressible and shies away from any attempt at expression and comprehension, as if it were an unnecessary and unhealthy rationalizing, which would put simple faith at risk of destruction. True faith aspires to the integral illumination of the entire human composite by subordinating to itself the reason, the will, the whole of life. Religious feeling, on the contrary, easily accepts a rupture between religion and life and gets along happily with ideas, convictions, sometimes entire worldviews that are not only alien to Christianity, but frequently openly contradictory to it. It is precisely religious feeling and not faith in the original Christian perception of the world that dominates, if not altogether, reigns in contemporary Orthodox piety. Its gradual substitution for faith usually goes unnoticed, because externally, on the surface of church life, it often appears as the most absolute, 100% bulwark of genuine churchliness and true orthodoxy. In its orthodox variant to expresses itself, to be sure, chiefly in uterine attachment to rituals, customs, traditions, all the outward forms of the church life. And here, thanks to this outward churchliness of religious feeling, so many do not understand that the conservatism inherent to it is in fact pseudo-conservatism, deeply alien, one can even say inimical, to the original Christian tradition. It is a conservatism of form, but one that not only fails to relate the form to its content, i.e. the faith incarnate in it, revealed and granted through it, but in fact denies the very presence of such content. If religious feeling is so conservative, so devoted to form that any, even the most insignificant change in the latter, troubles and irritates it, then it is precisely because it is bewitched by the form, form in itself, its immutability, sacredness, beauty. It is nourished by the form. It finds in it that gratification, the quest of which is its very essence. And thus it is even more troubled and irritated by any attempt to comprehend the form, to seek the truth incarnated in it and manifested by it, and quite rightly so, for here religious feeling can smell the mortal danger that hangs over it from the judgment of the faith. In reality, the newness, the absolute and eternal newness, of Christianity lies only in faith, only in the truth which is ascertained through faith and transformed into salvation and life. Therefore, without referring themselves to faith, Without constant identification of themselves as the incarnation and fulfillment of faith, no forms in Christianity are real, all the more so in that they themselves become idols and idolatry, for they create a violation of the worship of God in spirit and truth that was commanded and granted to us by Christ. It is not difficult to demonstrate that Christianity has created no new forms, but has embraced and inherited the old forms present in human religion and life from time immemorial. However, in this is its eternal newness, that it not only filled the ancient forms with new content, new meaning, but indeed transformed and eternally transforms them into the very manifestation, the very gift of truth, into communion with it as the new life. But this transformation, I repeat, is accomplished only through faith. It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh is of no avail. John 6, 63. Only through faith, because it is from the Spirit and knows the truth, is given the power to create life out of the flesh of the form, to transform it into communion of the one Spirit. 
But religious feeling does not know this transformation above all precisely because it does not want to. It does not know and does not want to know because in its very essence it is agnostic, not oriented toward the truth. It is nourished and lives not by faith, as knowledge and possession of the truth, as the life of life, but by itself, by its own self-delight and self-sufficiency. The best witness to this is the startling indifference to the content of faith, the complete lack of interest in what faith believes on the part of the overwhelming majority of people who call themselves believers and who are most sincerely devoted to the church. The radiant revelation of the triune God, of the Trinitarian divine life, of the mystery of Christ's God-manhood, of the union in Him, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, of God and man, the descent of the Holy Spirit into the world and in the Spirit, the beginning of another life, new and eternal, everything by which the early church literally lived, in which she rejoiced as the victory that overcomes the world, and which therefore became the subject of strained attempts at a comprehension and passionate disputes. All this holds no interest for the contemporary religious man, and this is not the result of a sinful laziness or weakness. The content of faith, the truth to which it is directed, holds no interest for him because it is not necessary for his religiosity, for that religious feeling that gradually substituted itself for faith and dissolved faith in itself. But then, of what unity of faith can one speak? What can this very concept, so important, so central to the early church and to her understanding of tradition, mean? To what experience can it correspond? If both theology in its formal, rationally and juridically saturated form, and piety, in its thorough reduction to individualized religious feeling, are not occupied with unity, for it dropped out of their field of attention and interest, then what is the content of this concept, which nevertheless remains one of the chief poles, the chief nerves of Christianity? Actually, there is much talk today, in all likelihood immeasurably more than in time past, because Christian unity about the unity of the church. But here the whole fact of the matter, I am not afraid to say, lies in the heretical temptation of our day, that this unity is something other than the unity that constituted the heartbeat and chief joy, the very content of Christian faith and Christian life from the first day of the church's existence. Almost imperceptibly to religious consciousness, a substitution has occurred, and in our day this substitution manifests itself all the more obviously as a betrayal. The essence of this substitution lies in the fact that, instead of understanding, recognizing, and experiencing the church as simultaneously the source and gift of a unity that is always new, for it is a unity neither extracted from the world nor reduced to its level, the church has herself come to be perceived as the expression, form, and sanction of an already existing, earthly, natural unity, or, to put it another way, the church as unity from above has been replaced by the church as unity from below. When in the service of this unity from below, the chief, if not the only calling and purpose of the church, becomes the expression and preservation of this unity of flesh and blood, the substitution becomes a betrayal. I am convinced that precisely in our day, and precisely because our epoch, as no other, is literally possessed by the cult and pathos of unity, this substitution is especially dangerous, threatening to become betrayal and heresy in the full meaning of these words, 
although this is something to which the majority of believers and church people are blind. They are blind to it because they neither have nor know any experience of unity, and consequently they do not want it. For the heart can only want that which, though only partly, in a mirror dimly, it has sensed, gotten to know, come to love, and already cannot forget. But here, not knowing, not remembering, they want and seek unity from below. To it they transfer man's unquenchable thirst for unity, and they fail to understand that, outside the unity from above given to us by Christ, any unity from below not only becomes inwardly senseless and useless, but inevitably becomes an idol, and, strange as it may seem, draws religion itself, Christianity itself, backwards into idolatry. Therefore the church, and first of all all orthodox theology, now has no more urgent and pressing task than the elucidation of the experience and knowledge of unity from above, i.e. the very essence of the church which sets her apart from everything in this world, but which therefore manifests her as the salvation of the world and mankind. 5. The loftier the word, the more ambiguous it is the more insistently it demands from Christians who use it, not simply its most precise definition, but also its liberation, exorcism and cleansing from the lie that perverts it from within. The discernment of spirits, to which the Apostle John, the theologian, calls us, is above all a differentiation of words. For not only did the word with the world and all creation fall, but the fall of the world began precisely with the perversion of the word, through the word entered that lie whose father is the devil. The poison of this lie consists in the fact that the word itself remained the same, so that when man speaks of God, unity, faith, piety, love, he is convinced that he knows of what he is speaking, whereas the fall of the word lies precisely in that it inwardly became other, became a lie about its own proper meaning and content. The devil did not create new evil words, just as he did not and could not create another world just as he did not and could not create anything. The whole falsehood and the whole power of this falsehood lie in the fact that he made the same words into words about something else. He usurped them and converted them into an instrument of evil, and that, consequently, he and his servants in this world always speak in a language literally stolen from God. This is why all attempts to reduce the question of words, their content and meaning, to a question of their definition are vain, for in any case a definition is made up of words, and this means that it does not and cannot escape from its own vicious circle, which enslaves all fallen creation. Therefore, the fallen word, like all the fallen world, requires no definition but salvation, and it awaits this salvation not from itself and not from other words, but from the cleansing and revivifying power and grace of God. Theology, whose essence lies in the search for words appropriate to God, is called to be such a salvation of words through the power of God, but it fulfills its mission not with the help of definitions, not through words about words, but by referring words to that reality and to that experience of it that is more primary than the word itself, and in relation to which the word is a symbol, manifestation, gift, partaking, passion, for it is precisely as a symbol i.e. not as a definition of reality, which in the end is undefinable, but as its manifestation and gift, as partaking in it and as possession of it, that the word was created. 
Through the symbol, the word frees itself from its fall and rises to the encounter with reality and that reception of it that we call faith. The flaw of contemporary theology, including, alas, orthodox theology, and its obvious impotence lies in the fact that it so often ceases to refer words to reality. It becomes words about words, definitions of a definition. Either it endeavors, as in the contemporary West, to translate Christianity into the language of today, in which case, because this is not only a fallen language, but truly a language of renunciation of Christianity, theology is left without nothing to say, and itself becomes apostasy, or, as we often see among the Orthodox, it attempts to thrust on contemporary man its own abstract and, in many respects, archaic language, which, to the degree that it refers nothing to any reality nor to any experience for this contemporary man, remains alien and incomprehensible, and on which learned theologians, with the aid of all these definitions and interpretations, conduct experiments in artificial resuscitation. But in Christianity, faith as experience of an encounter, and a gift received in this encounter, precedes words, for only from this experience do they find not simply their meaning, but their power. Out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks, Matthew 12:34, And thus words that are not referred to this experience, or that are turned away from it, inevitably become only words, ambiguous, easily changed, and evil. 6. All that has been said relates in the first place to a truly key term for Christianity, unity. I am convinced that there is no word in human language more divine, but therefore also more diabolical, in that it has fallen and has been stolen from God. And this is true because in this case both the primary meaning and the substitution, the theft, concern not something related to life, but life itself, genuine life in its quintessence. The word unity is divine because in the experience of Christian faith it is referred above all to God himself to the revelation of divine life as unity, and of unity as the content and fullness of divine life. God revealed himself in his triunity, and triunity as his life, and this means as the source and principle of all life, as truly the life of life. Perhaps nowhere is the church's knowledge that this unity is far above any reasoning and definition better and more fully expressed, incarnated, than in that icon of icons, Rublev's Holy Trinity, the miracle of which lies in the fact that while being a representation of the three, it is in the deepest sense of the word an icon, i.e. a revelation, manifestation, and vision of unity as divine life itself, as the real. Because the entire Christian faith, in all its depth, is directed toward the triune God, the knowledge of God and his triunity, through this knowledge it knows also the creaturely life created by him. It knows it in its original state. It knows it in its fall. It knows it in its salvation. First of all, this knowledge and experience of creation, i.e., as created by God and granted life as unity with God, and in Him, only in Him, with all creation, all life. Secondly, this is knowledge and experience of the fall, i.e., of the very essence of evil and sin as division, separation from God, and therefore the disintegration and decomposition of life itself the triumph of death in it. Finally, this is knowledge and experience of salvation, i.e., the restoration of unity with God and in Him with all creation, in which lies the essence of the new and eternal life coming in power, but already granted, 
already anticipating the kingdom of God, that they may be one even as we are one. John 17.22 This means that to the Christian faith, unity is not something important and desired, but nevertheless supplementary, distinct from faith, as if there could be faith without unity, and as if unity were not contained, manifested, and living by faith. In unity is the very essence, the very content of faith, which also is entrance into unity, the reception of the unity forfeited by the world in its fall, and the experience of unity as salvation and new life. Thus it is said of faith that he who through faith is righteous shall live, Romans 1.17, that he who believes in the Son has eternal life, John 3.36, and shall never die, John 11.26. Faith is the partaking of the unity from above, and in it of the beginning of another life, new and eternal. And the church is manifested in this world as the gift, the presence, the fulfillment of this unity from above and thus of life. The church is not something other in relation to faith, although linked with faith, but precisely the fulfillment of faith itself, that unity, the reception of which, the entrance into which, the partaking of which is faith. In the Christian tradition and experience, faith is that which leads us, which introduces us into the church, and which knows the church herself as the fulfillment of faith, as the new creation and the new life. The man who says, as is so often the case in our day, I am deeply faithful, but my faith does not need the church, may possibly believe, and even deeply, but his faith is something other than that faith that from the first day of Christianity was the thirst for baptismal entry into the church and the constant quenching of this thirst in the unity of faith and love at Christ's table in his kingdom. The whole life of the church is illumined by the Holy Trinity in a mystic unity, First Matins Antiphon, Tone 4. Conversely, there is no life of the church that does not shine through and commune in this divine unity. It is through this light that an ascetic such as St. Seraphim of Serov, in his remote hermitage, in an external sense distant from the church's visible reality, can nevertheless live in the church and through the church. At the same time, a man fully immersed in this visible reality, in the externals of church life, may not live by this light. For the whole order of the church, her whole structure, her whole visible reality is alive, real, life-creating, only to the degree that it is referred and related to this divine unity from above, and related not only as a means to an ultimate end, when God will be all in all, 1 Corinthians 15.28, but as the image, gift, light, and power, here and now, of the kingdom of God, as truly the visibility of the invisible and the realization of that which is anticipated. It is only through this unity from above in which we find the church's genuine life and grace and the newness of this life that the church is separated from this world, and it is only through the knowledge and experience of this unity that she knows it as the fallen world whose image passes away, 1 Corinthians 7.31, and which is doomed to death. For if the visible church in her members and in her whole external life is flesh of the flesh and blood of the blood of this world, then in her genuine life invisible to the world, for it is hid with Christ to God, Colossians 3, 3, and recognizable only to faith, she is, in relation to it, of an entirely different nature. It is this world, because its fall consists in this, that through sin its life was torn away from this unity from above, and in this rupture became itself corruption, 
decay, and hopeless enslavement to death and time, which reign upon earth. It is precisely this comprehension of the Church's being of a different nature in relation to this world, of her essence as unity from above, that discloses to us the genuine meaning of that substitution we spoke of earlier, that the chief and most frightening danger poisoning contemporary Church consciousness is the substitution of unity from below for unity from above. In order to understand the depths of this danger and its genuine horror, one must first of all sense the essence of what we have termed unity from below in contradistinction to the unity from above. It is that unity that, however much its fallen, dead, and lying in evil lives to the same degree that this world lives and that, however much it obscures and distorts, is placed in it by God. The devil could turn man and in him the world away from God. He could poison and enfeeble life through sin, permeate it with mortality and death. One thing he could not and cannot do, change the very essence of life as unity. He could not and cannot, because only God is the creator and giver of life. Only from him is there life, the law of which, however much life is perverted by sin, remains the law of unity. Everything that lives, in every pulse of life, lives through unity, awaits it, and strives toward it. The substitution, the victory of the prince of this world, however lies in the fact that he has torn this unity away from God, its source, content, and goal, and thus has made unity an end in itself, or, in the language of faith, an idol. Unity, which is from God, has ceased to be unity with God and in God, who alone fulfills it as genuine unity and genuine life. Unity becomes its own content, its own God. Here, on the one hand, because unity is from God, it continues to shine in this fallen world and to create its life, in family and friends, in the sense of belonging to a particular people and of responsibility for its fate, in love, compassion, and charity, in art, its flights and transports to the eternal, heavenly, and beautiful, in the highest quests of the mind, in the divine beauty of goodness and humility, in everything, in other words, that exist in man and in the world from the image and likeness of God, darkened but not destroyed. And on the other hand, to the degree that it ceases to be unity with God and in God, and is transformed into an end in itself and an idol, it becomes not only easily transformable, unstable, and easily shattered, but also the generator of every new division, evil, violence, and hatred, itself being turned downward to the earthly and natural, to things below, and regarding flesh and blood as its principle and source, this unity from below begins to divide in the same measure that it unifies. Love for one's own, unity among one's own, revolves around enmity toward the foreign, what is not one's own, and separation from it, so that unity itself proves to be above all a type of chauvinism, self-affirmation, and self-defense against something or someone. Everything in the world lives through unity, and everything in the world is divided by this unity, and constantly divides itself into collisions and struggles of unities that have become idols. 
And nowhere does the true and diabolical essence of this substitution become more apparent than in those utopias of unity that constitute the content and inner motivation of all contemporary ideologies without exception, both left and right, ideologies in which the diabolical lie sells itself as the ultimate dehumanization of man, as the offering of man as a sacrifice to the unity that has become a complete idol. Here is why the ever more obvious penetration into the church of the temptation of unity from below, its gradual poisoning of church consciousness, is so horrible. We're not talking about outward changes, about some revisions of dogmas or canons, about a reappraisal of tradition. On the contrary, in contrast to Western Christians who spontaneously capitulate to the spirit of our time, the Orthodox remain deeply conservative attached to everything covered by the halo of antiquity. Moreover, in this time of a profound spiritual crisis, provoked by the triumph of secularism, of impersonal and inhumane technology, of ideological utopianism, etc., this nostalgic attraction to antiquity is growing stronger in orthodox religious feeling, becoming itself its own form of a utopianism of the past. We are speaking of the inner orientation of the church consciousness, of that treasure of which the Gospels say that there, where the heart is, man's treasure is also, Matthew 6.21, and which comprises the inner nerve, the inner inspiration of church life. For the Church of Christ, the kingdom of God, i.e. the unity from above, unity with God in Christ through the Holy Spirit, has always been, always will be, and cannot but be such a treasure. It is only to manifest it in this world, and through it to save the world that the church remains and sojourns on earth. Her witness and proclamation concern only the kingdom. Her life is only in it. We can even say further that the coming of Christ and, in him, of the unity from above into this world, his commandment to the apostles, and thus to the church, to preach the gospel to all creation, baptizing them, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and thus to enter into the church and to create it, brought into this world the final and ultimate division, not peace, but a sword. Matthew 10.34 For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's foes will be those of his own household. Matthew 10.35-36 But the whole power of this truly saving division, the whole absolute radical distinction between it and the destructive division brought into the world by the devil, which comprises the very essence of sin and the fall, is that it is the exposure, and I mean this in the literal sense of this word, the manifestation, revelation, the unmasking, of the devilish substitution, the lie, the conversion of the unity from above into an idol, and the service to it in idolatry, in separation from God, in the division of life, in destruction and death. Only because the divine unity from above came into the world, was manifested and granted and abides in it, can man finally come to believe in it, i.e. to see, to accept its entire essence, to love, to know it as the heart's treasure and the one thing needful, but in the same manner to see and comprehend the utter depths, the entire horror, the whole dead end of the fall, of the unity from below that the devil has kept secret from us under cunning and seductive makeup. The conversion that necessarily lies at the foundation of Christian faith is first of all a conversion from the unity from below to the unity from above, the rejection of the one for the reception of the other. 
for without renunciation it is impossible to receive without repudiating the devil and all his angels and all his service. The baptismal unity with Christ is impossible. And a man's foes will be those of his own household. What are these words about, if not the unity from below? Any unity from below, i.e., unity that has become an idol and idolatry existing in itself, self-oriented and consequently a division of life. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. 1 John two fifteen through 16 What is this commandment of the apostle of love about, if not the renunciation of unity from below, in the name of the unity from above, of this world which has become an idol, in the name of the world as communion in the divine unity from above, as life in God. Here is why the unity from above, in which the salvation of the world lies, comes into the world through the cross, and is granted to us as the cross, through which, in the words of the Apostle Paul, the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world, Galatians 6.14, as a real struggle with the temptation of unity from below, which has permeated all life, both the most private, most personal, and the most external. But just as death, which God did not create, and which the Apostle calls the last enemy, 1 Corinthians 15.25, is destroyed in its very mortality in the free death of Christ, fulfilled only through love, only through self-sacrifice, and the tomb is thus made a bearer of life, so also the division brought into the world by Christ, since he is the exposer of the devil, the liar, and the divider, destroys the devil's work. For through this division the one real, for it is divine, unity enters into the world and reigns in everyone who receives and lives by it. Through it every division is overcome and shall be fully conquered so that God may be all in all. Yet Christians do not bear this gift. They do not endure their lofty and saving calling in this world. This unity from above is all that is necessary. The world itself, without knowing it, hungers and thirsts for it from the church. And all people have always wanted, for ages, to compel the church herself to serve all manner of unities from below, to bless, to consecrate, to religiously sanction them, to be their expression and justification. Precisely these unities from below, natural, national, ideological, political, have become the treasure of the heart, although the substitution is also often hidden from the very ones who accomplish it, for this treasure is clothed in church vestments and speaks so often in a particularly traditional, particularly orthodox language. But here, even if bewitched with churchliness, antiquity, and all their splendor, the heart that has given itself over to this treasure will not utter words that resound with such joy, and above all such self-evidency as, for example, those in the early Christian letter to Diognetius. Every foreign land is their fatherland, and yet for them every fatherland is a foreign land. Such a heart does not find Christians to be a third race, wanderers and strangers on earth, for they have already come to know, already beheld the full joy of the homeland of the heart's desire. Such a heart will not breathe by this freedom in Christ that alone bears the transfiguration of the world, the return to God of all unities, all values, which have been estranged from him by the devil. 8. Only now, having said this, can we return to that confession of faith, 
that from the first day of the church was and remains the condition of the baptismal entry into the church life and which in the current order of the liturgy introduces as it were the eucharistic canon the very sacrament of thanksgiving and oblation for man believes with his heart and so is justified and he confesses with his lips and so is saved romans ten ten we spoke earlier of the decisive significance of the word for the christian faith christianity itself is above all the good news the proclamation of the word of god and thus the salvation and revivification of the word its transformation into what god made it to be into the word not only about reality but word reality word life word as manifestation gift and great power the confession of faith in words and through words is thus so fundamental in christianity that the unity from above which constitutes the essence of the church herself as the unity of faith and love is realized granted and received above all through its naming through its genuine manifestation and incarnation in the word if the entire life of the church and the entire life of each of her members is called to be a confession then the principle the source of this confession is always in the word for in it and through it god's gift to us and our acceptance of this gift the communion the unity that also constitutes the essence of life of faith is identified named and fulfilled as the evangelical word about christ manifests and grants to us christ himself the incarnation of the word of god so the confession of faith in words the naming of the divine truth to which faith is directed and of which it is the knowledge is by the same token the gift of and communion in the truth therefore the church never ceases never tires of again and again and each time as if the first with one heart and with one mind pronouncing the most astonishing the most inexhaustible of all human words i believe and thus identifying naming that divine truth through the knowledge and light of which she lives therefore being the very realization of the unity of faith the confession of faith contains and grants the joy of this unity it is a joyful rite of the church and thus finally it is precisely this naming of the unity from above that introduces us into the sacrament of this unity that itself begins the eucharistic ascension to the table of christ in his kingdom but the confession of faith is likewise a judgment of the church and of each of us who are members of the church for by our words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned matthew twelve thirty seven in it is the criterion and in it is the indictment of all of our substitutions and betrayals in it is the unfailing test of where and in what is the treasure of our hearts the test of our faith itself everything in the church all her forms and structure and even worship and piety can be reinterpreted for there is no limit to the guile and cunning of the prince of this world everything in the world even religion even spirituality even visible splendor can become an idol and idolatry but as long as the church and each of us with her and in her repeats the confession of faith and by it judges herself and again and again is enlightened by the truth the gates of hell shall not prevail against her shall not dry up the eternal revivifying the eternally healing power of her life illuminated by the holy trinity in a mystic unity